You ever wonder how much impact one man can have on the world? I'll offer two contemporary examples for you of men who have greatly impacted the world, one negative and one positive. First is Vladimir Putin. Now, his name requires no introduction. Perhaps there are some who would have scratched their heads at the mention of his name years ago, not having given much thought to the leader of Russia, but not so anymore. The world has its eyes on this man for many reasons. One being the estimated 1,000 plus Ukrainian civilian lives that have been lost. That's not including those who are wounded and or displaced from their homes throughout this recent war. These lives will always be remembered as a direct result of the leadership of Vladimir Putin. We also think about the tensions that have risen around the world. Tensions that have possibly never been higher as sanctions are being levied against Russia and Russia has continued to respond with threats of greater violence and military action. Again, all under the leadership of Vladimir Putin. Contrast the name of Vladimir Putin with the name Donald Pinkel. His name may not be one that you're familiar with, unless perhaps you or your family has had someone made use of the services of St. Jude's Children's Hospital for the treatment of childhood leukemia. Dr. Pinkel's life was remembered when he died back in March of this year at the age of 95. He began his work sometime around 1950. It is said that prior to his work, and this was at then an experimental treatment, prior to his work, the death rate was somewhere between 94 and 96% for children with leukemia. But after his treatment had been developed, the death rate dropped from that 94 to 90. 6% figure to closer to 4%. Moreover, when he started his practice, childhood leukemia was said to be the number one killer of children between 3 and 15 in the United States of America. 94% of children between 3 and 15 lost their lives due to leukemia. But to the contrary, now it is said that nearly everyone with the disease survives, thanks to Dr. Pinkel's persistence in treatment. Think of how many lives... Individuals and families have been touched by this man over the course of 70 years of work. Dr. Al Mohler, in commenting on the significance of the impact of these two individuals, said this, and I quote, The Christian worldview underlines the importance of individuals, the importance of individuals such as Donald Pinkel, and yes, the importance of individuals like Vladimir Putin, and the fact that over time we are remembered by what we have done, whether Pinkel or Putin. Vladimir Putin's army has shelled hospitals, including a maternity hospital. Meanwhile, the research tower at St. Jude's Hospital in Memphis is named for Dr. Donald Pinkel. End quote. I'll ask again, how much impact can one individual person have on the world? Well, open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and there we'll think about the impact that one man has had on the world of humanity. As we gather together to celebrate Good Friday, the question is often asked, why do we call it Good Friday anyway? Why do we call that day good that Jesus Christ was executed on the cross? Yes, he was executed as a criminal. Why do we call it Good Friday? Well, I think this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is going to help us. I'm going to read the whole chapter of chapter 5, and then we'll focus in on just the one verse, verse 21. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you a cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though once we regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Pray with me briefly. Our Father and our God, again, we thank you for this day. As we come before your word, we pray that you would speak for your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, again, why is Good Friday a good Friday? It is because it is the day that we remember that God sent forth his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin in order that he might become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is what the verse says. That is why we celebrate Good Friday. By way of brief background, Paul the Apostle started out as an ardent supporter of Judaism. He was a teacher, studied under some of the great Jewish rabbis, and wholeheartedly pursued Christians to their death in Christianity's early days after Christ's ascension. Thus, after Paul believed and became a Christian, there were some who feared him, And some who, out of jealousy and disbelief, often sought to discredit him, 
So we see Paul defending his apostleship often in Scripture, either defending it or describing it, his motives, the truths that keep him going in the face of significant opposition. In this chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see Paul doing just that. He is describing his motives for persevering in the midst of opposition. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, we see Paul leaning in on the truth of the resurrection that we have, as he calls, a heavenly dwelling waiting for us in Christ. He says that we groan in our earthly tent, looking forward to the day when we will put on our heavenly dwelling, our heavenly tent. That is the truth that he holds onto in the context of his ministry, the suffering and the difficulty that he's endured, the beatings, um, being shipwrecked multiple times, all of what Paul had to endure as an apostle just to preach the gospel of Christ. He says, you know what I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to that heavenly body. And I say, Paul, amen. Every time I wake up with a backache, every time I wake up with a headache, every time I struggle with something physically, I think, you know what? God has prepared a body for me, and I'm so thankful for that. And I look forward to that day. In verses 9 through 11, he says that he knows he is accountable to God for how he lives his life and executes the ministry that Christ has given him, knowing that he will face the judgment seat of Christ. This motivates him to press forward in ministry. And then in verses 12 through 21, he says that he is compelled by God to preach, not just because he will have to give an account, but because he knows the power of God's work through the gospel, that God makes us new through the gospel, that he commits to us this ministry of reconciliation, that we must make an appeal to others as ambassadors that they be reconciled to God. Paul said, that's my ministry. That's really all of our ministry. We are making an appeal on behalf of God Two men to be reconciled to him through the gospel. And in verse 21 of that section, the verse of our focus for this evening, Paul makes clear how God reconciles men to himself. He says, I've been given this ministry of reconciliation, and this is how God reconciles men to himself. In verse 21, take a look once more with me. He says again there, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake, he made him who knew no sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, the text says. Now, there are multiple keys in the verse. It may seem a bit confusing. But Paul's point throughout 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that salvation is the work of God. It's not man's work. It has not originated with men. It is not kept by men. The work of the apostles is not of their own volition or conception. All of these things, all of these truths related to salvation is a work of God. We just read in Titus chapter 3, he saved us. So again, why are there multiple he's in our text? Well, typically when it comes to speaking about various aspects of our salvation, Paul often discusses the the impact, the work of each member of the Trinity. In Ephesians chapter 1, he does that. He goes through and he talks about how God the Father was involved in the Trinity. He talks about how the Son was involved in the Trinity. He talks about how the Spirit is involved in the Trinity. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3, Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In this passage, Paul is saying that salvation has its origin in the mind of the Father. From before the foundation of the world, he, the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It says again, according to the purpose of his will. Before we did anything, before we ever existed, our salvation was in the mind of God the Father. He was thinking about us. And he purposed our adoption in the family of God through Jesus Christ. In other words, we often acknowledge our Heavenly Father as the one who has planned and purposed our salvation. Similarly, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that we are to joyously give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints as he transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love that passage in Colossians because Paul says that the Father qualified us to share in the inheritance. Now, we had the Olympics a couple of months ago, and I I like to think about it this way. If you think about what it means that we are qualified, in Olympic sporting events, a person has to qualify in order to get into the final event. In other words, they have to do good enough in order to get into the final event, right? They They don't qualify to get the gold, but they qualify to get into the final event, and then they have to compete, and the one who competes and wins, they get the gold, right? Well, in this case, the text says in Colossians chapter 1 that the Father has qualified us not to compete in the event, but the Father has qualified us to receive the reward. So we skip the event altogether because Jesus paid it all. Amen? But the Father did that. That was his plan. That was his purpose. That was his intent. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and such we are, he says. I love the hymn that we sing often, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to save a wretch his treasure, to make a wretch his treasure. And we sing that in praise to the Father. Well, regardless of whether we point to the Father or as Paul in our passage, he simply indicates that it is the work of God, the point is the same, we cannot save ourselves. You couldn't do it for yourself. You had no ability to call upon Christ for aid, nor to ask him to die for you. You ever think about that? It's not like apart from God's work, we could just summon up Jesus Christ and say, hey, Jesus, could you come and die for my sins? He would have no reason to respond to that. He would have no reason to come into the world for that purpose. We have nothing to offer him to say, Jesus, please come and die for me. And he would have no obligation to do it. We've all broken God's laws. We know that. I think in every time that I've ever discussed the gospel with an unbeliever, I don't, there, there's not ever been anyone who's dis, disagreed with that. Everyone has agreed with that one point. Anytime I get to the point of saying that we're all sinners and we fall short of God's glory, everyone, 100% of the time, says, yep, yeah. I know that's right. It's because we all know it's true. Like We look at the law of God and we know we don't measure up. We don't have to read scripture to say that, scripture to know that. Scripture tells us that, but human experience tells us that. We all fall short. We all break God's law. 
And the reality is, because we've broken God's law, that makes us a lawbreaker, and that means that we require the consequence for breaking God's law, period. We're a lawbreaker. We get the consequence. That's it. If I'm speeding down the road, and I've used this illustration dozens of times, if I'm speeding down the road, the road out there says 25 miles an hour. If I go 26, now nobody's going to pull me over for going 26. But if I go 26, technically I've broken the speed limit, right? I'm going over the speed limit. So if I get a ticket, there's nothing I can say about it because I've broken the law. Once you break the law, you automatically deserve nothing but the judgment, right? Same as with the law of God. Isaiah 59, 2, your sins create a separation between you and God. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the separation in terms of it being enmity. There's enmity, there's strife between us and God because we've broken his law. And in Romans 6, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And after death comes judgment. We are all lawbreakers. We deserve judgment. There's enmity between us and God. Who can we call? There's no counsel that we can seek or hire who would be sufficient to stand before the judge of the universe to argue our case. Who can we call for aid? Christ would not answer. We are dead in our sins. That is our state before God. Dead, wicked, wretched, poor, and needy. But thanks be to God, he acted first. He planned our salvation from eternity past. He sent his son, Jesus, in the fullness of time. He sent preachers to deliver good news to us. He has given us faith to believe in his son. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he describes it this way. He's given us eyes to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has done this for us. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. Again, in our sake, text, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The love of the Father, the love of God is a great love. We love to quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The point of that text is that God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. The Bible doesn't romanticize our salvation. People often think of this text in John 3.16 in such a way that it tends to, to lead us to believe that salvation is about us and not about God. God loves us so much that he does whatever he needs to do. He accepts whatever he needs to in order to get to us. When we talk about sharing our faith or offering salvation to a lost world, the world tends to think that it can refuse and be okay with God because he loves so much. God is love, right? People say that all the time, and that's really all that matters. Sin doesn't matter. You don't ever talk about sin or judgment because God is love. You can do whatever you want. I can live however I want. God is love. He'll accept me, and you should too. The text is clear that this is the way that God has shown his love to us. God loves us in this way. This is how he's loved us. This is how he has demonstrated. The text even says that in Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his love toward us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. One cannot speak of God's love apart from sin and death. 
sin that we have, death that we deserve, but which he sent his son to take for us. We should perish, but God. There's no one neutral in God's eyes. There are no good people in biblical theology. We are all dirty, rotten, stinking sinners deserving of God's judgment. If you don't understand that about yourself, you don't understand the gospel, and you are not yet a Christian. How deep the Father's love for us. It is deep. It is great. It is so great that he sent us the best. He sent his only son. Back to our text again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now I'll get back to the he made him to be sin part in a second. What does it mean that he knew no sin? Jesus, the son of God, knew no sin, meaning he had no acquaintance with sin. He never indulged in sin. He had no experiential participatory knowledge of sin. He didn't sin. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He never gave in, never pursued, never indulged. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 makes this point about Jesus being tempted by sin. He says that we are able to come to God and ask for help when we need help, when we're struggling with sin, precisely because Jesus was tempted but never fell. And because he was tempted and never fell, he can help you to not sin. That's the point. We struggle with sin. All of us do. Where do we go? Where are we going to go? Who are we going to go to to help us with this? Jesus, the one who never knew sin, is able to help you. Again, Jesus never knew sin. He always wanted to do the will of his father. That was his desire. That is why the father refers to him as the beloved son in whom he was well pleased. In John chapter 4, after speaking with the woman at the well, when the disciples came back to, from buying food to share with Jesus, Jesus said, you know what, guys, I'm good. I'm working already, and I have food that you don't know of. He says, my food is to do the will of my father in heaven. To accomplish his work. As a man in fulfilling his earthly ministry, that is what drove Jesus to do the will of his Father in heaven. This was true to the degree that none of his detractors, those who wished to discredit his ministry, none of them ever had an opportunity to legitimately accuse him. He even gave them a softball one day when he was interacting with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, and he said to them very plainly, out in the open so everyone could hear, which of you convicts me of sin? And none of them said a word. Because everybody knew it. Jesus had no sin. He never sinned. He always did the will of the Father. 1 John chapter 1, Jesus is called Jesus Christ the righteous. Because he was righteous. In his life, he was righteous. He kept all the law. He pursued only what pleased his father. Back again to our text. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why would God cause Jesus to be sin? Well, precisely because he knew no sin. He had no sin of his own to die for. Thus, he became the perfect sacrifice. He was the unblemished and spotless lamb. You hear that 
terminology often used in the Old Testament. John the Baptist even referred to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, the highest sacrifice was offered once a year on the Day of Atonement. There was, of course, this sacrificial lamb, an unblemished and spotless, healthy, pure lamb whose blood was shed for the sins of the people. There were many other sacrifices offered, but this one particular sacrifice was offered once a year when the, the high priest would enter into the holy place, the most holy place in the tabernacle. They would shed the blood of this perfect, spotless, blemishless lamb, and they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat in the holy place as a sacrifice for the sin of all the people. But there was another sacrifice that was done around the same time, and this was a different kind of sacrifice. They had what they called a scapegoat. And this scapegoat, they would take, literally take a goat, and the priest would lay his hands on the goat, symbolizing that he's laying his hands on the goat, acknowledging, identifying with the goat, and saying that this is for the sins of the people, and they would send that goat away from the camp. The goat would literally leave the country where Israel was staying, he would leave the land and never return again. And those two pictures illustrate what God has done for us in Christ. One, that his blood was shed for us as an unblemished and spotless lamb. His blood was offered as a sacrifice for us. His death for our death. He shed his blood unto death. And because he died, we no longer have to. And the other of the scapegoat with the sin being communicated to the scapegoat and it being sent out of the camp never to return And that's what God does for our sin. He removes our sin. The text says in Psalms, he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Typically during the Good Friday season, we'll read from Isaiah chapter 53. That prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Peter summarizes the words of Isaiah in his letter. He himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. The Father, in his love, sent Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. He sent Jesus to be executed on a cross, a sinless, spotless lamb, not for his own sin, but for ours. That means that Good Friday is the black velvet backdrop of salvation. What do I mean by that? Stephen Lawson, a a preacher, um, had this example, gave this example one time of uh, the, the time that he went to purchase a ring for his future wife. Um, and so he goes into a jewelry store, just like all guys, kind of fumbling around, having no idea what he's looking for or looking at. And he looks at a couple of things, and, you know, the jeweler kind of takes things out, and he shows them. And, you know, he sees some things sitting on the counter. He's like, I don't have any idea, you know, what I'm looking at or how significant these things are. And they all look shiny and pretty. And he says, and then the jeweler does something different, um, you know, when he gets to a certain uh, gets to a certain point in the process. He said the jeweler took out this black velvet backdrop and he, and he set it down and then he took 
the ring, a couple of rings that he was interested in, and he put the ring, the diamond, on top of that black velvet backdrop. And he said the minute he did that, all, it seemed like all the light in the room just caught that diamond and it started sparkling. And he's like, that's the one that I want. And he's like, what I learned from that is that you need to have that black velvet backdrop to be able to see the beauty of the diamond. That's what Good Friday is. That's what the death of Christ is. It's the back, black velvet backdrop that helps us to appreciate the beauty of the diamond, the beauty of the salvation that God has given to us in Christ. But what is the beauty? What is the diamond? Paul gets to that in the rest of the verse. Take a look at it again. He says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sent Jesus Christ, the righteous, to be sin and to die on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to to dwell, speaking of Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by death. For what purpose? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The plan of God from eternity past is not only that we would be adopted as sons in Jesus Christ, but that all things would be reconciled in Christ. All things would be made new in him. All things would be made right in him. Thus, Jesus had to die for the sins of humanity so that our salvation would also be made right in him. Believers call themselves Christians because Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, is the one who died for us. He became sin for us. We have been united with him. He is our life. We are made holy and blameless and above reproach in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Your family heritage doesn't make you a Christian. Visiting church on major holidays and during church celebrations doesn't make you a Christian. I tell them this as often as I can, and my children can can attest to this, but I let them know with no uncertain terms that they're not Christians because I am, or because their mom is, or because I'm a pastor, or because we go to church. doesn't matter who you are. A person is a Christian because they have been united with Jesus Christ, and thus they're in Christ. A person is a Christian because they believed in Jesus Christ. They put their trust in him, thus they are united with him, the one who took away their sin, the one who paid the penalty for their sin. If you don't consciously know yourself to be trusting in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice whom God sent into the world to take away your sin, then you are not a Christian. You are still in your sins, and if you were to die tonight, you will die in your sins and face the judgment of God. In him, we become the righteousness of God, holy, blameless, above reproach. Our sin was credited to Jesus Christ on the cross, and his righteousness is credited to us. It's a great exchange. 
the righteousness of Jesus. All that talk that we had about how righteous Jesus is, about the fact that he always lived to do the will of his father, the fact that he was sinless, the fact that he never indulged in sin, never consented, never pursued sin, but kept the law of God at every point, the fact that no one could convict him of sin. The whole reason why we call Good Friday Good Friday is because not only do we recognize that an innocent man was convicted for crimes that he didn't commit, but we acknowledge that this innocent man was convicted for crimes that he didn't commit so that we could be forgiven and instead given his righteousness. In Philippians chapter 3, Pastor Scott just read, again, Paul talks about righteousness. He said that it was his goal to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, because he had none. He indicates early in the chapter that all of what he could claim as righteousness was nothing but dung. He said that it was his desire to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, but the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Don't miss that. There is a righteousness that comes from God that we receive on the basis of faith. That's the diamond, beloved. That's the shiny jewel held before the backdrop of the cross. We become the righteousness of God in Christ by faith. I wonder, do you have the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ? Acts 17, 31. The text says that he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. John chapter 3, verse 16. We love to read, but there's also John chapter 3, Verse 36, it says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you do not have the righteousness of God, which comes by faith in Jesus Christ, again, if you're not trusting in him alone for your salvation, then you will die in your sins and you will face the judgment of God as a lawbreaker with no one to stand on your behalf. If you have trusted in him already, rejoice that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You know, I asked earlier, how much impact can one person have? Today, we gather with the hearts of countless millions over the past 2,000 years to celebrate the death of Jesus. Sunday after Sunday, we gather to celebrate the life of Jesus. Sunday through Saturday, we seek to live like Jesus, who died for us, claiming his righteousness, the righteousness from God by faith. If you come back on Sunday morning, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I would say to those of you who have trusted in Christ, just as a prelude, if you're trusting in Jesus for his righteousness, do you live like it? Do you live like it? Let's consider that together as we pray.